Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Lessons in Leadership, our Leaders in Law podcast. The event you will hear today is one of Bridget and I's favorite, and it features Holocaust survivor and member of Schindler's List, Rena Fender. Rena is one of the most amazing and inspirational people we have ever been privileged to meet, and we really hope you enjoy this podcast. Now is in the hands, in the brains 
of the younger generation, of the, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and those yet to come. They will be the ones that will change the world. They will be the ones who will stand up and do something. During 1933, in 1945, people said, there is nothing I can do. And there is the biggest crime to say there is nothing I can do and watch what was happening. And of course, I am so very, very lucky because I survived, because I was saved by Oskar Schindler. Oskar Schindler did not stand by and do nothing. I survived with my mother, my grandfather, who was 75 years at that time, and I think he's probably was the only survivor after the war, that age. I am from Poland. I've, I lived in Krakow. I don't know if any of you have ever been to, to Europe, but if you ever go to Poland, you have to go to Krakow. It's a beautiful city, and the city was never bombed because Germans knew about Krakow. There is a huge old castle. That I think it was built in 8th century, and the Germans, when they came into Poland, they came into Krakow, but that's what settled the government. I lived right next to the castle, and I loved it over there. I'm an only child, and I lived with my parents in an apartment house. It was right across the road from the river, so right around the corner where there was a football team, that used to play games, and I could go to my grandparents' house and watch them from the window. Life was wonderful. For, for an only child surrounded by aunts and uncles and grandparents, all I knew about is love and fun. I think that I was probably nine years old when I started to hear things about Germany and Hitler. My mom's sister and uh, her husband and two children lived in Berlin and they had their own tiring and dress shop. And also my mother's one brother lived there. So I knew when they were coming to visit during the summer vacation. They were worried, they were upset, things were happening. I listened to what they were saying at night when they saw that I was sleeping, but I still tried to listen. But I didn't understand what was happening. Nobody had ever raised their hand to me or anything. I didn't understand what was happening. And I do remember that my mom's older brother fought for the freedom of Poland, the First World War, which was supposed to be the last war ever, 1914 till 1918. And uh, my mother's brother was a surgeon who, during the battle, was shot. Uh, my grandparents received the Medal of Honor, and they were so proud of it. I remember when I started school, I used to bring it in to show and tell. But I still didn't understand. I didn't understand. And then when I went to school, and uh, I went to school right around the corner from my house, 
I remember playing outside at the research when one of the little girls picked up a stone and threw it at me. And she said, you dirty Jew. And I was speechless. I came home and I said to my mom, how could, how could she call me dirty? I took a shower this morning. And my mom tried to explain to me something about anti-Semitism and people that like me each other. But then I remember she said to me, there is no, you're not going to like everyone. And not everybody is going to like you. But that does not mean that you can, just because you don't like somebody, you're going to be mean to somebody. Just ignore it. So I tried to ignore it until September 1st, 1939. Germany invaded Poland within uh, a week. And I remember watching on the street the mighty army marching in with the Polish boots and the cars. I had never saw cars over there. I don't think I ever saw a car before the war. In Krakow we had um, street cars and the carriages with horses. I don't think I ever saw a car, now that I think of it. And here they were. They were just like the... Very frightening, and yet, I was not that frightened yet, because they were people. They were normal people like us. They were fathers and husbands and sons and brothers, and they were doctors and lawyers and plumbers. They were normal people, so they're not going to do anything. And of course, as soon as the Germans settled in a castle, the governor started to issue orders. And the first orders were to get rid of the Jews. They, they wanted to make Krakow Judenfrei, which means free of the Jews. And the first order were that our bank accounts were confiscated, our businesses were confiscated, the Jewish people were not allowed to shop in non-Jewish shops, and the Polish people were not allowed to sell anything to the Jews. So people started to be running out of money and there was nothing to buy anymore. People were hungry. And uh, then the Germans announced that um, overnight, I felt like from being a little girl, I became the enemy of the state just because I was Jewish. And the Germans decided that they will build a ghetto of the Jewish people would build a ghetto. And um, the ghetto was actually part of the Krakow, part of the city, across the river. It was a smaller part of the city. There were like 3,000 people living there. And the Germans decided that they took a lot of Jewish people to build a wall around the area, and the Polish people had to move out. And the authors were that uh, all the Jewish people had to register. Anybody under 12 and anybody over 55 would not be allowed to remain in Krakow. Those people would be uh, sent to the uh, outside to the farms, outside of the city, to the farms to help the farmers grow food for the German army. And people, of course, some of people were sent away and we never heard from them again. Even though at the beginning, once in a while, people 
would get a letter that they have one that died, or sometimes they would get an urn of ashes. It was very hard to imagine why healthy people were dying, but also it was impossible to imagine that something terrible happened. Because you cannot believe cruelty and hate and murder for innocent people from people that you consider as intelligent. After all, Germany was so famous for its authors, composers, musicians. People could not understand what was happening. Jew Jewish people were very religious, as the rest differently. The men had long beards and they had long hair. And those people who were walking by on the street, they would be snatched by the soldiers. And they would be shaved out on the street, and then they would be kicked and beaten or put on trucks and taken away. And my father was still saying, the world will hear what's happening, and they will come and save us. And then the ghetto was ready. And we were told again that anybody under 12 and anybody over 55 would not be allowed into the ghetto. And we had to get permits. And I remember that uh, we went to the Gestapo headquarters and we stood in line and we were, it was in a big square in the, in Krakow there's a huge square and there was that building that uh, the Gestapo was in. And we stood surrounded by what it seems like hundreds of soldiers. The soldiers were heavily armed, and um, they all had dogs. And the dogs were trained to attack people. The dogs were huge, and they wore their muzzle, and they were looking straight at me. One of the soldiers was one of the dogs. And he was saying, he's going to let them go down, go and eat me up, he was saying. And I looked around. I looked around because we were in the middle of the city, but we were surrounded by the Polish people who lived there. They were, of course, they, they were occupied, but they were not enslaved. And the people walked around like we didn't exist. It seems like everybody went Deaf and blind. In the whole world went deaf and blind. It's like we didn't exist. There is no way anybody can say, I didn't know. You would have to be deaf and blind not to know. I remember how lucky we were because my father was able to falsify my birth certificate, made me two years older. And we were allowed, he got permits to leave our homes and go to the ghetto. We were given three weeks, I remember. Of course, my memory is not as good as it used to be, but um, I know that we had to, that it was in March. It was probably 1940, maybe 1941. And um, I remember that um, my, uh, my father was, got a pushcart so that we could put some pots and pans and some um, mattresses and we were only allowed that small suitcase 
I remembered that uh, because it was March, it was cold, I remember I put on like three or four sweaters, three or four pairs of ski and um, I remember going into my bedroom and looking around at the thing that I loved. I loved uh, to read, so I had a lot of books that uh, I couldn't take with me, there was no room, and I was uh, collecting Shirley Temple dolls. I don't know if any of you here knows or ever even heard about Shirley Temple. But she was an American actress, and she had, in those days she was more famous <laughs> than any other doll I ever had of. And I couldn't take it. I had to leave it. And we walked down the stairs. I tried to say goodbye to some of my neighbors I used to be very friendly with, but nobody was home. So we started to walk away, and I looked back, and I saw every one of my neighbors behind closed windows and behind the lacy curtains. Everybody was watching us, watching us walking away. And um, nobody had the guts to say goodbye. And I remember as we walked through the street of Krakow, I remember that there were young people and they were throwing stones at us and they were saying good riddance, good Jews don't ever come back. Stand by and see people who were lived there for centuries, their neighbor. How could they just stay by and treat us like we were worse than animals? Of course, the German propaganda was so strong that um, they convinced the people that the Jews were worse than uh, rats and cockroaches. They were inhuman. They used to uh, measure people's nose to say who is a Jew. I mean, it's to this day when I think of it, I can't believe it happened. Because how could the world stand by and not do anything like if we didn't exist? And marching to the ghetto, there was uh, Jewish policemen, they were given the job to make sure that everybody was walking straight. There was the Polish police, and of course there were the Germans. The Germans with the dogs, heavily armed. And um, we had an apartment in a very old building. It was four-story high, so I think we lived on the fourth floor. I don't remember how we got up there. I know that we walked into a very small apartment, and the first room I remember was one of my father's brother and his wife and child living in that tiny room. <coughs> and the next room, there was we walk in and there were three people there. Uh, one of the, I think it was a friend of my dad's and uh, his wife and sister. So I remember my parents put a hook on each side of the wall, put a string on, hung up a blanket and we have half of the room and the other half of the room belonged to the other. And uh, my father said, don't worry. Don't worry because the world we hear what's happening and they'll come and they will save us. And everybody who had businesses before the war was taught to create a workshop in the ghetto. Like for example, there was a workshop for tailors, for dressmakers, so they were making uh, uniforms, 
As long as you could work, the salary would be okay. They were making shoes, they were making brushes. I met my mom and I got a job in a printing shop. And I remember working, uh, some women were working in making envelopes, and I was working on a big machine where you had to put the paper on the machine on one side and then one on the other side when it went through the machine, it was like lines in it. And, uh, and we kept thinking, as long as you are right, as long as you're not sick, as long as you're not starving, as long as you are working, somebody will come and help. But help didn't come. The Germans, even though we were behind the walls, surrounded by German soldiers, they used to come in every day, every night. They would either come to the workshops, they would walk the street, they would come at night, they would kill people. They would drag people, take people away, and you never heard about them. And what people don't know, I think most people don't, don't understand that when Germany got Adolf Hitler, was a massive murderer, he started killing his own people. Because in the very beginning, when he became the Führer, he started to take children from families, children that were either mentally or handicapped or physically handicapped, they would take those children and told the parents, what are we gonna make the children better? But we took children away and they killed those children. And then the parents got a note that your child died and they would get the animal's ashes. Adolf Hitler wanted his Germans to be all blonde, blue eyes, very strong, very athletic. Have you ever seen pictures of Adolf Hitler? <laughs> Have you ever seen what he looked like? He was not blonde, he did not blue eyes, he was not athletic, he looked more Jewish than anybody I knew. <laughs> How did the world allow this to happen? Because some people say, I didn't know, that's not true. People knew from the beginning. There were reporters in Berlin, there were reporters in Hamburg, there were reporters from the United States, from, from England. In the beginning, there were reporters from France, of course, France was occupied, Belgium was occupied. But in the beginning, nobody did anything. Nobody cared what was happening. It was so easy to kill innocent people. One day, my father's parents didn't get a permit, and they were taken away from us. My mother wanted me to hide with them. In back of the building where we lived, there was a huge mountain of dirt and dry leaves, and I remember we crawled under it, and um, I don't know to this day why my mother made me go with my grandparents because I did have a work permit, my grandparents didn't. But I remember hearing the Germans come in, I felt like the ground was shaking because of the way they ran through the, through the walk, ghetto walls, and the way they screamed. 
It was so frightening. It was so frightening. And of course, after a while, they left. And it was quiet. And my mom and her sister came in and helped me and my grandparents crawl out from under all the dirt. And I remember sending the, taking my leaves out of my hair when two soldiers walked in. There was nobody in the street. There was nobody around. It was getting dark. And they were young. And they took my grandparents away. They didn't beat them. They just knew that they couldn't get a permit. They just took them. And I loved my grandmother. And uh, she just turned around and she said, don't worry, it will be okay. After that, things got worse and worse each day. One day my father was arrested, was taken away in the middle of the night. And um, I had such a, I was so sure that whatever my father would be, he would be okay. He was only 40 years old. He was a very handsome man and strong. And my mom and I were alone. And that's when we were heard again that they're going to build a concentration camp and ghetto was going to be liquidated. And the concentration camp was just a few miles away from the ghetto in Krakow, in a little place called Plaszów. And it was going to be built on three Jewish cemeteries. And the men from the ghetto were taken to build the camp, Plaszów camp. And you can imagine what happens when the ground is level on the cemetery. And some of the stone, which at night, some Polish people were stealing the stones and so they could use it for paving their street or their home. I don't know what they did with it. But the time came when the Plaszów was ready. The camp was ready. And the commander of Plaszów would be Amunget. Amunget came from Vienna. What we saw from Vienna, that is a good thing, because everybody in Vienna has got to be so, you know, kind and very, of course, intelligent, so they wouldn't go for the Nazi stuff. That's what we saw. Amon Gerd was a murderer. I have never heard of a man that would kill with such pleasure innocent people for no reason. He was going to be in charge of us. When the, when the camp was ready, we had to leave our home, little homes. The workshops were transferred. They were made, they were built in the camp so that we would be working. I remember we were allowed to take one little suitcase. I remember that little children were not allowed to be taken to go into the camp, and all the people had to remain in the ghetto. My mom and I were taking care of my little cousin, Jenny. Sometimes, somehow, when her parents and older sister was taken out of the ghetto, my father was able to take the little girl, Jenny. She was five, and she lived with us. So that when we went to work, she was alone in the room. She was alone. She, she had to hide. All the little children that were left in the ghetto had to hide because, and they were hungry, but they were so smart, they were quiet. So I tried to take Jenny, and the, the Jewish policeman stopped me. She was under my coat. She was walking 
with her hand around my waist. And uh, he says, you, you can't take her. Leave her in the ghetto orphan's home. The nuns will take care of little kids. So I did. Couldn't take her. And I was sure she's going to be better off with the nuns. And as I, as I joined the people I work with, and we started to leave the ghetto, and when we were gone, maybe a mile, we started to hear shooting. And we didn't know who was shooting whom, because certainly we didn't think that they were killing the children. We were so naive. All the, most of the children in the ghetto, over 1,500 people left in the ghetto were killed or sent to Auschwitz. And the camp is very hard to describe. The horror of the camp, the horror knowing that Amangel was going to be in charge, because we began to hear things about him. And he wasn't healthy in the morning unless he could stand on his balcony and shoot a couple of people. Then he would smile and go back to breakfast. You know that I was asleep. The few years that I was in the camp, and he stood in front, I never knew what he looked like. Somebody showed me a picture of Adam, Adam Gerd after the war, and I didn't recognize him, because I felt that if I don't look at his face, he won't see me. I was afraid to make eye contact with him. And the horror about Adam Gerd cannot be described. My mom and I, we were still working in the, in the printing shop because all the shops from the ghetto were moved to the camp. And uh, we didn't have enough food. They didn't, of course, feed us. People were sick. People were dying. And that's when I heard about Oskar Schindler. Oskar Schindler, who was born in Czechoslovakia, was a young, very handsome man. He worked for his father. They were selling farm equipment. And he knew Krakow very well, because he had used to come for business. He was one of the first. He was born in Czechoslovakia, but he was a German. And he was one of the first to join the Nazi party. Amon Gerd became one of his best friends, because, Amon, because Oskar Schindler needed Amon Gerd to allow him to hire more Jewish people to help in his factory. He bought this factory, we called it Amalia. Part of the factory was making pots and pans. The other part was making ammunition. And he employed more Jewish people than the Polish people because he claimed that uh, he paid less money for the Jewish worker than for the Polish worker. <coughs> but these people who worked for him, and they were coming back to the camp, and we're telling what kind the kindness of uh, Oscar Schindler, the care of Oscar Schindler, how he made sure that people were not hungry. So because he was bribing all his so-called friends, he was bribing the generals, he was bribing the politicians, so that he, he claimed that he needed the Amalia factory that was making pots and pans to send to his fatherland. And uh, to the generals, he said he had needed more people because he said they were making um, shares for ammunition. They would be needed for the war. And because he always 
play games with them, I mean cards, and he was always losing. He was drinking with them. He never got drunk. They all got drunk. He was, bu he was buying them expensive presents. And they loved him. They had a lot of fun. Of course, they never knew, because if they knew, they would have killed him, that he was really helping his workers. Life in Camp Plaszczyk was so horrible that um, finally, Oscar uh, Schindler was able to really brag I'm dead with God knows what, how much money and gold and all kinds of things. And he was going to build a little camp next to his factory because he said walking from Plaszczyk camp to his factory was too long a walk and too much time wasted. And of course, Amundet agreed. And Oscar Schindler said he needed 150 women to come to work, especially young ones with skinny fingers to clean the shelves. And when I heard, when my mom heard that it was Oscar Schindler looking for more people and that uh, a friend of my father was making the list, she asked me to, she told me to go and tell him that we want to go. And I did. To this day, I never asked her why she didn't go, why she sent me. But I guess she thought he couldn't refuse me. I don't know. But sure enough, she put the name out, my mother's and my name on the list. And we were the lucky ones. We were the lucky ones who could leave Plasho where there was murder every day on innocent people, where he stood for hours watching innocent people being hung beaten or shot. Went to work for Oscar Schindler, where there was food, where there was cleanliness, when there were small barracks, where actually were bank beds, not like the barracks in Plaschburg that were like shelves. And there was Oscar Schindler watching out for us. I look at Oscar Schindler and I really felt that, you know, God sent us an angel. Because the words cannot describe his kindness. He came into the factory every day and he was talk to people. He would leave cigarettes on the machines where the men were working. We would never, I remember at night shift, he would tell the young kids like me to go and clean his office. Well, he really didn't want us to clean the office. He had cleaning people during the day. But he knew he would go under his desk and could sleep. Nobody would come to his office. If somebody got sick, there was a place for him to get better. There was a little, a, a, a little cottage that was the hospital where you could go when you were sick. Actually, I remember I got pneumonia and stayed in the little cottage for two days, I think, if I got sick in a, a classroom. And if I would go to the clinic, they would kill me. So no matter how many words there are in this world, you cannot describe what the dangers that Oscar Schindler faced every day by being good to us. The guards that were supposed to guard us were not allowed to come into the camp, and they were not allowed to come into the factory floor. They just waited for people to leave the camp and walk that uh, little, little road to the 
that story. And uh, life, you are beginning to believe that you're going to survive. And then, of course, Germany was losing the war against the Allies. So Ger the Germans who were determined to win the war against the Jews killed every one of us. And they started to closing the camps and in Poland and sending people deeper into Germany. And that's when Oskar Schindler made his famous deal with Amundgert, that he would move his factory to Czechoslovakia, to Bernice, and take his workers with him. A miracle that could never have happened without him, and the words of Annalena was to describe. We were sent to Plaszow first, while the men were dismantled the factory's machine. Amonkert was not in Plaszow anymore, and I remember we, all the women, there were 300 of us, that we were packing the things that the Germans were stealing from Poland. All kinds of magnificent paintings and gold and jewelry and furs and oh, they were stealing it from wherever they were and we were packing it and they were picking it up and sending it to Germany. But then the word said the camp was ready for us to leave and we were going to be sent to Brennitz. So the 300 women, 150 in each wagon. A pilot of boxcars. Can you imagine if you think of it like they put animals in it, there would be two or three at the most. 150 women into each one of the boxcars. There was no place to move, there was no place to turn around, there was no water, no bathroom facilities, no air when they closed the door. We had no idea what was going to happen. Women were fainting and were still standing because there was no room to fall. When finally, after a long time, the train started to leave, and it took, we were scared. We were afraid. We didn't know where we were going. Something didn't seem right. Finally, after what seemed like forever, the train stopped. It was very late at night. The doors were open, and I remember the spotlight shone on our train, and I could see barbed, miles and miles of barbed wire. Seemed to me like hundreds and hundreds of soldiers with their guns, with their rifles, with their dogs, and I remember the sign, Auschwitz-Birkenau. And then we realized, we have heard about Auschwitz. People who, who escaped or people who somehow heard were talking about Auschwitz. But how could a normal human being believe that what you thought were normal people, with, with all the engineers and all the scientists and all the doctors and lawyers and all the brilliant people in, in Germany, they would spend their time instead of finding cure for cancer or other diseases. They would spend their time figuring out how to build some machines or something that would kill the people faster and quicker. They invented the gas chambers and they invented the crematorium. Auschwitz won 
was actually a place where the Polish army lived before the war. The Germans kept their uh, prisoners, some of the Polish people, some of the prisoners of war, some of the political prisoners, some of the religious prisoners, like Jehovah Witnesses who didn't want to fight, and, and some Polish prisoners. But Auschwitz too, Auschwitz-Birkenau, was built especially for the gas chamber and crematorium to murder the Jewish people. I remember we had to jump out of the train, the boxcar, and the dogs were barking, and the soldiers were yelling, screaming at us to run. And there was, we were so thirsty. We didn't have anything to eat for such a long time and drink. And uh, we saw it was snowing. It was late, late October, beginning of November. And we tried to catch the snowflakes. There was no snowflakes. Those were the ashes. And there was such a stench in Auschwitz. There was such a stench in Auschwitz ashes that the families of the guards that were guarding us were complaining they couldn't let their children play outside or hang their laundry out because of the ashes. I remember how when we jumped out of the train, and of course most of us fell down, how the dogs were barking and the Germans were screaming and rushing us and we were running and I could see the crematoriums. I could see the smoke coming out even though it was midnight. I didn't still believe it because we heard about it. People were talking about it while we were in the Plaszczyk concentration camp. But how could you believe it? How could you believe so unbelievable? Not possible. And it's not possible that the people around, living around there didn't know. Everybody knew. They just didn't say anything. I remember they put us into a huge room. Well, first we were standing outside that huge room, and there were so many soldiers there, one of them especially was a whip. There was some people right, left, right, left. And we were sent to the right. I could see to the left were women who could barely walk. We went to this big, big hall, big, big barrack. And we stood in line. We were told to undress. Fold your clothes. You're going to come for it. Don't walk it. Don't be scared. And we stood in line. And then they, I could see ahead of us, there were, there were people cutting our hair. And when I was a little girl, I had big braids. And uh, when we were going into the ghetto, my mom took me to the hairdresser to cut my hair. And I remember my father cried. He said, why did you cut her hair? And she said, it would be easier. And of course, she was right. Because we didn't have shampoos, we didn't have shower. It was very hard to keep clean. And it was dangerous not to keep clean. And now I stood in line, and I was among the people that were being shaved. Our hair was being cut and shaved by people who didn't really know that well, and whose uh, scissors were not just sharp. So they were pulling our scalp, we were bleeding, we were crying. And they were saying, oh, don't worry, you're not going to the, to grass. You're going to the showers. And they, they put us into a room dark. There was no light. We still stood there shivering, 
And then the light came on, and then the water came down, cold water. And I look at my mom, and I didn't recognize her. I didn't recognize my mom because I, I couldn't see myself. And uh, I said to my mom, well, now we are dead, so we're not going to feel any more pain. And she said to me, no, we're not. We, we are alive. I said, no, mommy, no. She said, touch me. And I touched her and we were still alive. And then they pushed us out to another room, not where we left our clothes. And they were women as guards. And they were worse than the men. They were so horrible, cruel, that there are no words to really describe those women. They were beating us. There was a, there was a whole bunch of wooden shoes. You had to quickly put the foot into it, and you couldn't take it off whether they were too big or too small. And then on the other side, there was a bunch of clothes laying there. And they said to us, get dressed, get dressed, hurry up. And I, I remember I grabbed something was yellow with red flowers. I pulled up that dress. It was a dress for a big woman. She found dress. And that's what I put on in November, where it was cold. And they pushed us out. And there we were. There we were. Auschwitz, Birkenau. Auschwitz-Birkenau that we heard about, but would never believe. And there is no way, as Elie say, there's no words in any language to describe what Auschwitz was like. All I could see was mud everywhere. And they, they rushed us and they put us into a barrack. They didn't enough, have enough room for us. Some people slept on the, in the barracks on the floors, the wooden floors, and some slept in the, on the shelves. And there were two women in charge of the barrack, and they were Hungarian. They didn't speak Polish, and they didn't speak German, and we didn't speak Hungarian. So they were always yelling, and we never knew what they wanted. You cannot imagine that human beings are capable of such cruelty, of such hate. The hate ate them up. But it also made them kill with joy as many people as they could. And to this day, I cannot, cannot understand. We were lucky. The woman on Schindler's list were in Auschwitz for three and a half weeks. Because when Oskar Schindler heard that we were sent to Auschwitz, immediately he called the commander of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hess, and told him, those are my workers, I want them back. And uh, they told him, oh, they, they're here too long already. And, um, and uh, we'll send you new ones. And Oskar Schindler said, no, I want my workers because they are good workers. I don't want anybody who doesn't know what they're doing. So he said, for those of you who saw the movie, Schindler's List, Oskar Schindler did not come to Auschwitz to get us. He sent one of his secretaries with a bunch of diamonds. He bribed the commander of Auschwitz. 
and she agreed to let us go. So the 300 women on Schindler's list were put in the two cars this time so that we could sit down. The only transport of women that ever left to live, all the other transport that left Auschwitz went to kill and murder innocent people. We were sent to work for Oskar Schindler. I remember in the train when one of my girlfriends got, was very sick, she was running such a high fever, she was laying, sitting down, laying down, and she was so hot. And I remember trying to stick my skinny finger to get some ice or some snow to put on her lips. An hour after we left Auschwitz, she broke up in scarlet fever. If that happened while we were still in Auschwitz, they would have sent us to the crematorium to the gas chambers right away. How lucky we were. And there we were in the trains, and we couldn't believe where we were going, what was happening to us. And then after many hours, I think, I don't remember, and the train stopped and the doors opened and there stood Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler who bought us out, who wanted to make sure that he saved us. I honestly saw that he was sent from God, that he was an angel. And he said to us, the men are already here, because the men were sent separately, of course. And uh, I have had soup waiting for you. And he, we walked to the factory. Front of the factory was where the factory really was. And in the back was uh, part of the factory that uh, was made into a place for us, for the people to sleep. But when we got there, we didn't have any beds. We had a lot of straw. The beds didn't come yet. But we didn't care. We were with Oscar Schindler. Mrs. Schindler also came to Brunitz. In the basement of the factory, she had a little clinic. In Oscar Schindler's factory, there were only two people who died, and they died a normal death, being taken care of Mrs. Schindler and some of the Jewish doctors. One was an older woman who had a heart attack. And then there was a younger girl who was, um, had cancer. And by miracles, they were able to get education, morphine, so she wouldn't suffer. And both of those people, they were buried in a casket. And they were buried in a place where Oscar Schindler could bribe the, actually pay the pastor of the cemetery to bury them. So that after the war, the family could come and get them and bury them in a Jewish cemetery. Two people out of thousands, thousands and thousands of, of people were murdered. If they were lucky, they would be murdered and they would be buried in a grave. But the people in the winter of 1945, when the war with Germany was being won, the people were sent into marches through the worst winter that ever was. The people from Auschwitz that had practically no clothes on and no shoes walked on the death march. Most of them died. 
and they were left on the road. So there is no way that anybody could say, we didn't know, we didn't see. They were right there. They were not blind, they were not deaf, they pretended to be. And there is no way that the world didn't know. They said they didn't know, they knew. They knew because there were people who had information, who, uh, there was somebody that came to have a, a meeting with uh, President Roosevelt. He sat there for about 25 minutes and told him what was happening. And uh, the president said thank you and never said a word. The telegram from the, from uh, the American, I read it myself in France, in the Holocaust Center in Paris. It said that we have to win the war first. We cannot be bothered with anything else. People did not care. And that's why it is so important for young people to understand that one person can make a difference. You cannot stand by and see something happening. I know there is a lot of bullying going on. And I try to tell the young people a bully is a coward. A bully is never going to attack somebody who is bigger. It's only somebody smaller. Go get the teacher, or go tell your parents, or go tell the police. Because a bully will be afraid. And there is no way that you're going to win if you're going to hate. Because hate is the worst disease that that, that will kill you. People who have hate, they don't know how to read and write. They don't know how to hate. It is so much easier to be what we call an upstander and not to be a bystander. And I really believe that the younger people, when those of us who survive, by telling our stories, it's really for them to take off and go on with the facts known that yes, they can make a difference. They can vote pretty soon. A lot of the kids I talk to, they're going to be able to vote in this November. Go and vote. And don't care whether the person is black or white or yellow or whatever color. Because when you cut your finger, your blood is red. Underneath, we are all built the same way. We are all mothers and fathers and grandparents and sisters and brothers. There is no place to wait. Kindness make you, makes you better. If you do something good, the love that you will feel for the person that you saved. The love that the person will give you, that will make you stronger. There is nothing in this world that can happen that you can say, it didn't happen to me, so I don't have to worry. Because eventually it may happen to you. That's why you have to say, I can help, I can do it. There is nothing I cannot do. Every little bit, every little bit hurt. I wouldn't want anyone to go and try to save somebody who's being beaten up. Go get help. 
And it doesn't matter who do you, who you believe in. Because I, I, I am sure that whether you are Jewish or Muslim or Protestant or Catholic or whatever religion you are in, it's your own business. It doesn't matter who you believe in. I cannot understand to this day how people could do such horrible things and there was nobody to say no, except Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler, who saved over 1,200 people, who took care, he made a lot of money when his, the factory was working. As the war was ending, uh, he spent all the money on buying food for his people. And it was even hard to buy food. For him, the most important thing was to save his people. And when he knew that the Russians were coming, he had to leave. He had to leave because the Russians would kill him. They didn't care that he saved us. They only cared that he was a member, that he was an SS, that he was a member of the Nazi party, that, that he was the owner of slaves. He didn't care that he was slaves, he saved. And uh, he, they just wouldn't look at him the way he really was. He had the hardest time after the war. In Germany, they considered him a traitor. So the German, the Nazis were getting a pension. Oscar Schindler had to fight for the pension. There is nothing in this world that cannot be changed if people want to do good. If people don't just sit. The people have to remember that after the Holocaust, I thought there would be another peace forever. I never imagined there would be another war. After the tragedy that happened to so many millions of people, I thought the world would change, but it didn't. I remember I was shocked when the Korean War broke up. How could it? Only five years after the war to end all the war. And it's happening again. There is genocide and murder and killing of innocent people. The young people have, we all have to bond and make sure that this doesn't happen. And that's why the survivor, they sort of pass over the torch of memory to the younger generation because they are the one who will save us. They are the one that will stand up and say, we cannot do that. I can see it tonight is the most, the most important example of those young people who have arranged this evening, that they understand at such young age I have noticed that over the past few years, how moral, how smart, how eager they are. They don't like, don't think like little kids anymore. They think better. I think we should do certainly better in our, our government than what's happening now. My face is, I am too old to be here when things change. But I think for my ch children, and certainly my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, 
I know they will have a better world. I know they will never have to go through what we are going through, what we went through, and what we all of us are going through now. so many people still don't fully know about and acknowledge what happened during the Second World War? I think people out there don't care what happened. And they can't believe it did happen. And they just want to go on without worrying about anything. Similarly, um, how do you feel about the fact that despite the horrors that you've talked about, about during the Holocaust and everything that happened, Genocides and human rights violations have occurred and are still happening. So how do you feel about the fact that despite the horrors that you described and what happened during the Holocaust, Genocides and human rights violations, like what's happening, what happened in Syria and Myanmar, still happen today. I, I can't believe that. Um, I can't believe that what's happening. Oh. I can't believe that there is no, there is so much interest shown by people about what's happening now. How can the Americans, the British? United Nations. Why are they quiet? How can they let innocent people be murdered again? Children taken away from their parents? It's, uh, I know that uh, the only way we can do it by all speaking up. Everybody, everyone, all over the world. We again what's happening right now. People from Syria, people from uh, Bosnia. <coughs> I have friends that the, the, the lost boys, how the boys that had to run away from their homes in Syria, and um, because they were attacked during the night, parents were shot. Their <laughs> brothers and sisters were shot. The boys ran away, it was eight years old, there were many of them. How, how could people, how can people sit and do nothing about it? They said we far away. That's, that's beyond my understanding. I feel that um, there should be more teaching in schools. Some schools don't even teach about the Holocaust anymore. 
Thank you for, I'm very lucky that um, I am uh, uh, connected with an organization called Facing History in Ourselves, who started to teach about Holocaust about 43 years ago, because the teachers wanted to teach and couldn't find any information. So they started to write their own book about the Holocaust. And they got, uh, somebody gave them some money, some rich people, kind people, and they started going from school to school. And some um, principal allowed us, uh, you know, allowed them to talk about it, and some schools didn't. I remember being in a school in Brooklyn, and the mother was saying to the principal, I don't think I want my child to know about the Holocaust. And uh, the teacher was nervous about it. But that had changed because now I, the Facing History Project, the books that they write about telling the teachers how to teach other, I think in 40 countries. They are in Japan, they are in China. And the teachers come in the summers from different parts of the world to take a course. I have been asked to Nassau to come and talk, and uh, to people who never knew about the Holocaust. I think uh, for the United States not to teach about Holocaust and the genocide, uh, even the things that are going go on right now, I think it's a big mistake. I think our children, their age, they can handle it. If they but I have great hope that those two people sitting right here. <laughs> do you think that media portrayals of the Holocaust, like Schindler's List, are accurate and do they help increase awareness of the Holocaust across all communities? I don't, I don't think there is enough talk about it. I don't think that the, the media, there are very few that uh, really speak about it. And, and I know people are not interested. Most of the people don't want to know. That's why it's so important to teach the younger generation. Um, we have uh, one more question before we uh, put it up to everyone. Um, and what was just, this is kind of a different topic, but what was the transition like back? You know, it was such a harsh existence, I'm sure. What was the transition like coming over here? That is a very good question. Um, I think it, take, it takes a while. Uh, I slept with the scissors under my pillow because I was not ever going to let anyone come and take me out of my house, out of the apartment. And my husband was working on a night shift, so I was alone, and I was scared. And I think until I had my baby, um, I had to get up and take care of her. I, <laughs> during the night, uh, I stopped being afraid. That took like almost four years. So do we have any questions from the audience? So what? Well, we were liberated by one Russian soldier on a horse 
And uh, he said to us, you are free. And we asked, uh, where did you come from? And he said, well, I came from Poland, from Krakow. And we were, uh, a lot of us were from Krakow. So we asked him, are there any Jews there? <coughs> and he said, there are very few, and they don't want you back. Don't go to Poland, because the Polish people don't want you back. But we all wanted to, to go back, to find our family. And they arranged for us um, uh, Russian, together with the Czech government. They arranged train to take us back to Poland. This time there were boxcars with, uh, with coats that soldiers live on, with food, with water, everybody was kind. But when we got to Poland, they also told us, don't walk at night. Don't show yourself at night. So they put us, we got in at night, and they put us uh, in a school. And there were beds in school. And in the morning, when we woke up and could go out, we had to go to a Jewish agency. And it was in a school, in another school. And there were letters all over the wall. I am so-and-so, did you meet any my family? And, uh, Nobody was looking for us. My mom and her whole family, her sisters, her brothers, her nephews and nieces, grandparents, they were all gone. My father and his six brothers, and all, all the little cousins, they were all <coughs> we, did, we had nobody. And, um, and the Polish people hated us. Started shooting people and beating people up, and everybody had to leave. But we went to Austria, and we lived in a displaced person camp, and waited until President Truman came in power and decided to allow people in, immigrants in, before the United <coughs> States um, was very much against letting more Jewish people in. Well, on that note, when you said the United States didn't want to let you in, what do you think when you see them saying they don't want to let the immigrants in now? Does I feel it? the same way I felt when I was an immigrant waiting to be let, waiting for someone to help me. I wish I could sponsor somebody to come, but they wouldn't let me.
asking that uh, there were a lot of Nazis that came to the United States, uh, had no problem. Uh, of course, Schindler could not bear the permit. He would come and visit. He would come and visit people. I never saw him after the war because I was in Massachusetts and he would come to New York and I couldn't afford to go to New York at, that, at the beginning. And. Um, They wouldn't let him in, they wouldn't give him papers to, to live in the United States. He went to Israel to visit, he called, and most of his survivors, um, Shindarzis, went, went to uh, Israel. That was the first time he came to visit his children, as he called us. Uh, there were 4,000 people at the airport. Our failure. He says, us, people had children. All of a sudden, there was a lot of, a lot of children, a lot of people. But in Germany, they didn't treat him. He was attacked by somebody in Hamburg on the street. And when he went to court, the court, the judge blamed Oskar Schindler and not the guy who attacked him. So, that's how it goes. And we cannot afford it to go on like that. And that's why I'm so proud of those kids here, because I really and truly believe that worked. I myself, <laughs> not, I'm not working <laughs> hard anymore. My age has stopped me from doing things I would have done when I was younger. And that's why I feel very strongly. The young people make a difference. And the young people, they will not call it. When people get together, and I see white and black and Chinese and Japanese, and that's what will make a difference. The difference will make when people realize that it doesn't, that those things don't matter. I think we have time for one more question if anyone has left. Many survivors talk about how they lose their faith in God. Do you still believe in God, and how did you reconnect if you do? This is a very good question. I was very angry at God. The first uh, holiday was for New Year's, Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. And um, I, I was already in this place, person came with my friend Sonia, and we were not going to go to pray. We definitely were not going to go to pray. I mean, there was no, because there was no synagogue or anything, and it was summer, early autumn, actually. And so the Jewish people who lived in that camp, they were going to pray outside. My friend and I, we went to a movie the first day. But then we felt so guilty. So I still didn't go to the temple for a long, long time till my kids got older. And I realized that uh, 
instead of saying, you know, God, why didn't you? He used, I want to say, man, why didn't you? Where was man? Why didn't man stand? Why, why did the people stand by and do nothing? I feel now that uh, God was in, in heaven, wherever he is, and crying when he said what was happening. But I think people have to depend on each other and uh, help each other instead of waiting for a miracle coming from heaven. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. Um, I really appreciate how much you came out. Um, Rena's first-hand st story of the horrors of the Holocaust holds such a powerful message of tolerance and resilience. And whether it's a big or small injustice, it matters, and we must heed the lessons that history taught us in order to make the world a better place. Kindness and tolerance are always going to trump cruelty and hatred, and we have to learn that and act that out in our own lives. Um, Dana and I would like to thank the Greater Lowell Community Foundation for their continued support, as well as our new partner organization, the America's Promise Alliance. And thank you again to Peace First for making this event possible. And most of all, thank you, Rena, for being here with us tonight and sharing your story. I hope you all enjoyed tonight's event, and please check out leadersinmoral.org for more events coming this fall, including a new series on the impact and importance of civic engagement. So thank you all for coming, and have a great night. We hope you take to heart Rena's moving story and her lesson. To hear more content like this, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts or at leadersinlowell.org, where you can also learn more about this event, Rena, and our series. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Lessons in Leadership with Leaders in Lowell. Bye.